This week on Teacher Talk, we're taking up fighting in school. This is your host, Dr. John Brown. We hope you'll join us. The doctor is in. So thanks for joining us on Teacher Talk. This is John Brown, and my guest is Scarlett Tanetta. She works for Satchel Pulse Education Consulting Company. You, Scarlett, were a school teacher and school administrator. You have seen many, many, many different schools and programs because of your work, which is why you're here today. And we're talking about fighting in schools, violence, disruptions at a scale I have never seen before in my career ever. It's disturbing. I'm seeing it through you folks that I know through Teacher Leadership Network and that I have in my classes and former students and colleagues are reporting that there's fighting going on in schools between students, attacks on teachers, but I don't have to be working in education at all to know about this. There have been newspaper articles published in the Boston Globe, the New York Times, there's a big piece on it two weeks ago in the Washington Post. There is There, there have been students arrested in schools. There was a teacher attacked in Boston last week, Dorchester. She was knocked unconscious by a student. It's, it's a scary place to work now. So my wife works in the Danvers Public Schools which is famous for an isolated incident where a teacher was killed by her student, raped and killed by her student. And those teachers still have PTSD to this day, but that, and I don't dismiss that, that incident at all, but that one student was singularly alone in this act. What's going on now is like an illness that's spreading. It's the, the, the social norms of schools, have broken down and people are just interrupting um, their teachers. When I go to observe student teaching practicums, I'm, I'm seeing it with my own eyes. They are loud in the hallways. They are confrontational and oppositional in a way that I've never seen before. And, and, and I'm hoping, Scarlett, you can, you can give us a clue as to why this is happening now. Like what, what happened to our schools? I don't think it's one thing. I actually think that it is a build up and tumble over a lot of things added up since March of 2020 when students stopped going to school. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, um, so there's been a lot of conversation about learning loss. And when, when that's talked about on national public radio or on the national news, That conversation is almost always about academic learning loss. And I'm wondering how much like social and emotional learning loss, which includes the concept of self-regulation and just normative behavior, social behavior, how much of that was lost over that period? And is there something else also on top of that that has occurred in the past year while students were either remote or socially distanced and in school or some combination of both. Jen Susie's in the line. Jen, tell, tell us what your experience with this is. Part of this is personal experience where I'm identifying with the student experience of being out of school for a, a year. 
And because I was, because of the position I'm in where I teach, I didn't teach English last year. I literally was separated from everything I was used to. I was home and teaching a different class. So I needed to make this work as an adult, just like the kids needed to make that work. And it was an emotional experience. So because I'm an adult, I was able to move through and note, make note of what my experience was. And when I could easily see what was happening to the kids stuck in stages, I was able to help. All right. But my caseload, my caseload, my student roster was so small. I usually, I'm usually with 100 students a year easily, usually more than that. Sometimes I've got a big study and I have 150. But this, that last last year, I only had in my, uh, I only had about 20, maybe 25 all year long. I had a lot of time for them. And I did nothing but stay on with students all day long. I thought as long as I am here, I can provide help. So one kid had a violent past, and this is why I'm telling the story. She came to me with a violent past, used to make solving problems with violence. She had reported being sexually assaulted. She had had an experience going through a system that was not friendly to her. She was she came to a place where she was not going to make it. And I called DCF. So I, it, my call to DCF put her back in the classroom. And she, I think she was with me nonstop through the end of the year. And so she, suddenly I had one student who almost never left my Zoom. And so I worked in front of her. I came in in front of her. I did everything in front of her. I also talked with her about her violent experience. She would show me videos of her violent behavior that was being recorded and caught and then being used against her on social media and other places. It was fascinating to watch. And I would watch these things and I would tell her, I was like, oh, I see you hanging back there. You know, like, why didn't you go in then? And she was saying, look, I was trying to avoid fighting then, you know, and she was, we processed moment after moment of violence. Okay, now I see her at school because it's a year later and the child is different. The child is wearing pink and she's in a good mood and she's, we've never met, we met personally for the first time this year. It's not only being remote that is causing it. It's not only MCAS, but it is, I think in a way, That emotional journey that everyone had to take in their own way with their own horrible experience. Like this this kid was had her thing, but the others were left with their thing. And you know, I wasn't on Zoom with them all day long. You know, there were other kids just like that kid, and there were hundreds of them, and they didn't have someone that had that dedication. And I think that one-on-one dedication, knowing somebody, helped that one kid. And then that not known thing, that feeling not known, you have license to do anything. And the MCAS is just part of it. 
on making you, turning you into something nameless. I think to go off of that, what directly connects to that too, is how you make a great point that students need personal relationships with teachers and and just one adult in the school, right? To feel valued. And what else is happening right now? There's a nationwide teacher shortage, bus driver shortage, paraprofessional shortage, lunch worker shortage, right? There's not people. My I live in Lowell and my daughter takes the bus and it's supposed to come at 2.53 every day. And today it came at 3.10. And we got a text that the bus was going to be late. And that happens on a regular basis. Um, I know there are some people here who work in Lawrence. My husband works in Lawrence and the National Guard is driving vans at his elementary school because there's no bus drivers, right? So it's like a kid who maybe the bus driver was their person or the cafeteria worker was their person. They don't have that anymore. So students are literally left without a net. And it's not because people don't have the best of intentions. It's not because you as a teacher don't have the best of intentions. There's only one of you. And you probably have 125 students again. So what do you do? How do you do that? That's why. That's just another reason, you know? So what both of you saying is how important this should be a wake up call for average American in society. This is how important teaching is, despite the fact that teachers hands are generally tied by curriculum bureaucracy and regulations and high stakes testing. Still, we've managed to with a relatively antiquated system. All of us have great ideas about how to change it. Nobody's interested in listening to us. And still, up until just recently, there has been relative calm in mandatory public education. So what you do is you take all these people, the young people, who are, there, who are ready to you know, start feeling who they are and rejecting other people's directions as a, as a normal consequence of being an adolescent. And teachers have always handled that very well, despite our lack of training, despite the lack of training that teachers generally get about dealing with difficult interactions. Teachers generally learn that stuff on the fly and they learn it fairly well. But with the the combined learning loss, the stresses that have been ramped up over the past 20 years for for teachers and students, and also what you were just saying, Scarlett, that there is a lack of both teachers Physically, like teachers are, are, are leaving the, the, the job, they're retiring early, they're quitting, they can't handle it. I've, I've talked to so many people in the past six months who are like asking me technical questions. Like if I leave now, can I still have health insurance on my pension? I'm like, why, why do you wanna leave now? Like what's, what's going on? You know, this was like last September, you know, just a few months ago. Like you have no idea how bad it's getting in school. I'm like, what do you mean bad? And the answer to that question was always the students are incredibly irritable and they are oppositional and they their needs aren't being met and nobody cares and I'm not sure I can meet them anymore. Meanwhile, the other piece of it is that administrators are telling t- teachers, and I hear this every day, it's business as usual. We're moving on. We're not we're not stopping. And the fact, the fact that the Department of Education has, has decided to administer high stakes tests like the MCAS and schools like in big cities like Lawrence is still administering the, the map and they're testing for skills that were never taught. 
which means that data is not even valuable, but they just want to continue business as usual for the sake of returning to normal. How's that working for us? It's are, not we, are we back to normal? So I, I hope that the, the administrators, because the, the administrators are getting, you know, knocked unconscious too. Uh, I hope that the administrators are getting a good, a, 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 getting a chance to reflect on what we're going to do with this, which is my next question for you, Scarlett. To go back to that thing that, that Scarlett and you were just saying, John, that all of these triggers, like that MCAS high stakes testing, that affects so many students. I know it doesn't affect all of them. And I know that teachers also are, are affected by MCAS, but really that's not what's making the, like the, the, I have the, I have an honors kid who sweats during class and he, I mean, he will not be violent. He won't actually throw a punch, but I can see this really terrific, com completely per like a perfect child. I know there's no such thing, but he's perfect. He's perfect. He has nothing to change. He doesn't need anything. And he is becoming a series of ticks. He gave a presentation where he couldn't, he literally couldn't stop like hitting his foot. As he spoke, he kept lifting his foot and hitting his own foot. And when I saw your post about the violence, like that's, that's connected to other triggers that are making the children. It's not, it's not just like that principal who was knocked unconscious has my undying sympathy because I can't imagine that ever happening. And I, I have no, I do not side with any violence ever. And I still say that was a child and we are the adults and I got to figure out why the child is doing this. And that boy that gave the presentation today and the child that knocked the principal unconscious, they're the same child. So yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you said that because it was, it's been, that's been on my mind. I posted, and, and some of you may have seen this, I posted a promotion for this show on Facebook. And then there was a big, and I saw Jen, you were in there, and there was a big misconception about, the number of misconceptions about what the show was gonna be about. One's that um, the show is gonna bash teachers and say, it's a teacher's fault. And that's, that's where, you know, you're getting close to that. I know you're not bashing teachers and you're not intending to, but a lot of teachers might respond right now and say, but Susie, it's not our job to take care of this. And you and I would disagree and say, it is our job to take care of this. Um, Actually, like, rather, I, I disagree. I would say, no, you are right. It's not my job. I would say that does not fall under the, the um, you know, I don't have that in my contract. I don't have to do that. And I think teachers are right to say, I draw a line and I am not responsible for that. And I see teachers doing things that I am not, there's no way I'm going to do. I am not going to take responsibility for cheering the football team, but I will be willing to take responsibility for this. And I don't mean blame, <laughs> you know, like I, this has nothing to do with me. I'm perfect in this regard. And, you know, bring me your children and, you know, enjoy the outcomes and vocational teaching. That's part of it. So I'm comfortable in that role. And I know that there are wonderful teachers that do things that I cannot do. And I will not take responsibility for that because that is not in my contract. And I, no one has to make me do that. 
but this where I can like uh, I can connect through literature. The the points are uh, work in my classroom. I'm, I teach books that have topics of you know where violence is committed. You know I'm in high school and I can. This is this is a powerful position for me to be in. And our skill sets are, you know, are what's necessary to address this problem. I felt myself working on this problem as a teacher on Facebook in that, like, it, that's a um, that public place and trying to educate teachers on the difference between taking blame and taking responsibility. So well said. Uh, it leads me. It leads me to to ask you folks, what can teachers do specifically to help students, both the students who we, we might want to judge and demonize and say, these students are bad kids. I think we should help those people. And that, I think that's their needs are not being met. And that's why they're acting this way. And how can we help the students who are victims of either, you know, verbal, emotional, physical violence or violence by proxy when when a child sees their teacher or principal attacked by another student or when a child sees another child and I say child, I mean, all the way up to grade 12 attacked by another student, they, they have a traumatic experience. They're having a traumatic experience of one sort of or another. And it could be a triggering event for some PSD experience that they've had in the past with they've witnessed violence where they've been attacked themselves. So this is this is like a contagion that when one person's attacked, lots of people are affected. Um, that the person who's attacked is affected. The person who gets attacked is affected. The people who witness it are affected. Even the people who hear about it are affected. What can we? What can teachers do? I shouldn't say we. I'm a, I'm not a teacher anymore. What can What can teachers do specifically on a daily basis to to a prevent this and b respond to it? Christina, do you have any ideas uh, here? I, I I know that you work in a school district that it has been fraught with with violence over the past month and and i'm wondering if you have any thoughts about this yeah so this is as you know my first year teaching i did student teaching during covid so i never had to deal with classroom management really um and i did my student teaching at chelmsford high school so it was completely different i work at a middle school in lawrence right now it's been really tough. Our particular, my grade, grade six has been, it's one of the tougher groups in the school, actually. It's grades three through eight. So they made their way, you know, through the school. So the teachers all know them for the most part. What we've been doing, Lawrence, right now is um, we have a restorative justice kind of curriculum going on. They're trying to implement that. And I actually have a PD I did last Saturday and I'm doing one this Saturday for tier uh, one training on restorative justice. And what we've been doing every week, we do these um, restorative justice circles in the morning during homeroom. And um, we kind of, we have these different like topics we talk about, like motivation. We talk about like what happens when a friend, like how to be a good friend. This is friendship week right now. And what we just talked about in one of our meetings earlier today with the principal, we're trying to reboot the sixth grade in their mindset right now. And we're going to have a meeting on Tuesday, I think with the whole sixth grade, but what we're going to start doing is instead of, we're going to start doing a detention after school, but instead of detention, we're going to have them do circles. And we're going to talk about like why they are staying after school. And we're going to have to like, trying to have them like mediate and talk with one another. And we're going to do this in every grade 
we kind of, our grade kind of jump started it because we're like, we need to do something. I've been doing this thing where like, you know, if the kids are disruptive, I set a timer. And as the time goes up, that's how much time they owe me after school. Um, as sort of, we're trying to prevent things as much as possible. I had a fight in my class just last period. It, the kids, actually, the two kids were about to go at each other. The other kids pulled them apart. I was about to buzz. One of the kids ran out for the, um, this happens every day for me. I'm just, this was my voice sounds like this. I'm just, you know, I'm used to it at this point, but I know the kids, like I love all the kids, like they're, they can be so sweet. And it's so strange because they'll be great one minute, the next minute, you know, it, it's like all of a sudden they flip a switch. You know, that's what we're doing here. I don't have a lot of experience with this, but I found that just pulling the kids aside and talking to them and letting them know that they're not, it's not a bad thing. They're not in trouble, but I just want to get to the bottom of why they're acting this way. They'll usually tell me, I had one student tell me, and he's been a joy this last week, but before that he was like up and down the halls, running through classes, causing mayhem. But this week he's been great. And I talked to him and he said that his, like his dog, his dog had just had puppies and two of the puppies died. And that reminded him about how his aunt had died last year. And he was there when it happened, like his grandmother found out and he saw her crying. And these kids go through so much. I found like the home lives of some of these kids. I can't even imagine. I found out like stories about some of them. One child's parents where his mother was murdered by his father. Like it breaks my heart, you know, and we have to understand that like some of them, this is their safe space. Like the the school is their safe space. So like to then, I know some of them told me they wanted to stay after today with me because they don't want to go home. So the fact that they don't feel safe in school, a lot of them, it's really disheartening. Um, So I think that this circle thing that we're going to try out next week, I'll let you know how it goes, but hopefully it does something. I think it will because the circles we've been having in the morning have been really nice. The kids are really opening up and talking to one another. Um, So I'm hoping that the after school ones do the same thing. I have two things. I want to say I, I heard good things about that. And I also want to direct you to a piece of technology to save your voice. It's used for um, students who don't hear. And you, you, it's, a, it's a speaker, okay? And oh. you put on a thing and you tie it, you hang a thing around your neck and your voice is amplified. I've got it. Every, I've been using it. It's right here. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. That's every teacher should have one of those. Yeah, I've my my mentor teacher suggested I get one and I got one the next day. Um, It's helped. But even then, it's It's, so loud sometimes that just yeah, I heard good things about the thing you described. I'm happy to hear that. So, so Christina, thank you for 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 telling us what your school's trying. Some schools are are, are doubling down uh, hard on discipline. And that that doesn't seem to be working. Not from anybody I've talked to that an ethic of care seems to be called for, but that's difficult too, because there are some victims in, in, in the you know, students, teachers who feel like, you know, being soft on discipline isn't enough for them. I, I've been to your school. So I, I've supervised two practicums in your school and I've seen it day to day. And I know that those children at that school had those experiences those negative experiences at home back then too. Why is a thing so different now? Or maybe that's not true. Maybe the negative experiences they had back then were minor compared to what they're experiencing now. But 
but, but what what do you, how do we account i know you weren't there then christina but how do we account for this change it's really almost seems like a pre-covid post-covid change and 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 i i can only guess i i mean i know that alcoholism and drug abuse went up like more than just ticked up during covid because people had time they were inside it was a there was there were there were uh, recovery programs weren't initially on zoom alcohol sales were through the roof during covid some communities had greater economic impacts than others yours probably did people probably lost their jobs families probably got ruined by that uh, people probably more people in your community probably died is this a is this a collective ptsd for for the community some communities and or or is is there something here that we haven't touched on yet well i have like two things so one was to point out yeah so the kids some kids i know that their parents are like left them with family and they're back in like the dr i have a couple kids like that and that must be so horrible for them because they feel abandoned and i know just from watching the news there's this one um, we've talked about it here, but social, social, emotional learning for these kids, they are so stunted right now because they missed basically over a year of school. Um, they don't have that social interaction. So many of my kids don't know kids in other classes from their same grade that they've known, like they've been going to school with since third grade. They're like, who is that? I just had that happen today. I mentioned a name. They're like, who? You know, they, so we're going to be shaking up the homerooms again. We're going to be the end of the term, the end of the month. We're going to be switching them around again so kids can, we can try to find that sweet spot of having some, you know, kids that can model good behavior for the other kids. But I've just noticed like something someone said on the news, I think it was a student from Lawrence High. She said that they just don't know each other anymore. Like they haven't been able to see each other and they can't, I forget the word she used, but it was really good. She was very insightful. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense that they just don't know each other. They haven't had a chance to like bond. I don't know if that's exactly what she said, but I completely agree with that. And then something else, a little unrelated, but you had said that people say that that approach can be soft. We were just talking in PD on Saturday about, and it's people from Suffolk University that are doing it. Um, they were just saying how this is based on a Native American indigenous people's like um, customs, these circles. It actually can be harsher on them because you're, instead of punishing people, and in our, I'm speaking of not really the school, but just the country as a whole, the punitive system, you're, a lot of people don't actually serve time because they're, you know, they're, they're just um, settling out of court. So they're not actually being like punished for what they did. They don't really, you know what I mean? It's hard to explain, but so in this system that, you know, the circles, the culture of the indigenous people, they, it's more of a community watch so that everyone knows what you did and they hold you accountable for it. Like if you know that you did something wrong and everyone else knows, you're less likely to do it again. So it's actually a, almost a harsher system in a way. And that way they actually learn from what they did wrong rather than like, oh, you're going to get detention after school. It's hard to, especially for a kid to equate, you know, yelling out in class with detention. Like they're not, especially if you're getting punished the same way for different things that you do. Like if you get detention for yelling, for hitting, for this, you might then put them all on the same level of, of an infraction when they shouldn't be. Like yelling out in class is completely different than hitting someone. 
you know, and, so. And I'm assuming that it, it's, it's a social accountability. Rest, yeah. Restorative practices, restorative justice, rest, restorative justice, restorative classrooms. The ethos there is to have, for people to be accountable for their own behavior and have to look at it. It's not a public shaming. It's meant that they may feel embarrassed or self-conscious, but it's not meant to be a shame, shaming experience. Right. And if it is, then it's being done wrong, but that they're supposed to be able to reflect on and recount what they've done and how it's affected other people. And so they can make the, the it's actually changes the experience from being uh, what we might typically call a disciplinary experience to being a teaching experience where they learn. And that is very, very difficult for schools to do. But hearing that you're going to Saturday, you're going to classes on Saturday, so you can be a better teacher for your students Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, shows that that's the investment that's necessary here. So uh, I, 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 hate, I shouldn't put on my union hat here, but I'm going to, and I, I'm gonna ask you, Christina, are you being paid for going in on, on Saturday? I think so. So it's required and you have to do tier. There's like tier one, tier two, because I'm new, I'm doing tier one and it's two Saturdays in a row from eight 30 to three. So it's the full day. So I'm, I did ask one of my, my team leader, who's the science teacher. She said that when they did it last year, it was all, all it's all online, but she said, yeah, you get, you get paid especially, but the other PDs I go to, um, I go to one every like other Monday just for new teachers, that's optional. So I don't, and that's only for like an hour and a half. This one, I'm pretty sure I do. I would hope I would because it's required. So I, I think I do. That, that like of, of all, <laughs> this is, this is tough for me to hear. And I know it, it doesn't seem like it's, 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 it's not phasing any of you guys, but it's tough for me to hear that, that you folks are dealing with this very raw, very somewhat new and disturbing behavior also being the the subject of or the target potentially of violence whether it's verbal or physical and then you go to work on saturday to try to make it better that's i i, I don't know i'm i'm impressed and, and and i'm i'm sad that you you folks have to work twice as hard while you're working twice as hard after you just came off of a year which is the worst year to be an educator it was your first year christina the worst year to be an educator in the history of modern history of the united states education system if we ever get out of this hole you'll be like ah it was nothing compared to back in 2020. i see melissa is calling in melissa thanks for joining us what 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 are you experiencing in your classroom? Pretty much just the same that I'm sure other people have been saying, just an escalation in uh, drama and fighting. And not just that, um, it's just they don't know how to acclimate. And it's not even just not knowing who their peers are. It's not knowing where to go from there. Okay, so I put you in partners. Now you're just staring at each other. Now, if I put you with your friends, you know, they, you were friends pre-COVID. So you already know how to act around them. Now I put you with somebody who you never really talked to and you have absolutely no idea what to do. So I'm actually going to try to do an SEL thing on Monday when I realize that they just 
suck at this. <laughs> so what they're going to do is I, I created a lesson that's actually kind of like a speed dating sort of thing. Uh, giving them these uh, questions that they can ask and you roll a die and um, start talking about that. And then different levels here. So if you roll a six again, this is another thing that you should do. And then, all right, time's up. And now we're switching. I think that's actually going to be really helpful for them because, you know, sure, there's curriculum that we have to do. But if you want me to get to a think pair share, they have to actually know what to do in pairs. So that's what I'm trying to get them to do. If you want me to get them to collaborate and discuss and know what that's like and have Socratic seminars, they have to know how to act first. So, I mean, you always hear, you know, Maslow's before Bloom's, and I completely agree with it, but, you know, but that's an easy thing to say is just putting that into action. And I think us as teachers, we could try to do all we can, but we have things that are out of our scope of practice too. And I, I mean, I keep hearing like, not just learning loss, but gaps, which I absolutely hate. I absolutely hate hearing that word too, because it's not that they're gaps. They are where they are. They might be uh, behind according to curricula and according to their grade level and age, but they are where they are. If they don't have foundation, foundational knowledge, you're not going to make it past there. So it's not gaps. They just are behind. Or maybe they lost some knowledge there too, and you have to backtrack. But it doesn't mean that they're here, there, whatever. I just, I think it's propaganda to say that. So, Melissa, this is, I'm glad you brought up the word gaps. So, and I'm also, it it, it heartens me to hear that that you folks are teaching. What you know how to do is teach and you care. So I'm going to turn that care into teaching. I'm going to teach these folks how to behave. I'm going to teach these folks how to relate with one another. I'm going to teach these folks how to be better people. And that, that's my answer to it. I'm not, I'm not going to discipline them. I'm not going to shame them. I'm not going to punish them. I might have to hold people's account, people accountable for their behavior. I might have to set boundaries uh, and, and set them again and set them again. But most importantly, and you mentioned Maslow before Bloom and, 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 and just for everybody else's understanding of what you mean by that, you mean Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs is more important or at least a prerequisite for classroom teaching before you can get to Bloom's taxonomy, which is a, you know, a, a understanding of different levels of thinking and it's more cognitive. So, and I gr- agree with that 100%. If, if like, for example, one of the human needs that Maslow mentions is being able to breathe. If you're, if you're not breathing, you're not gonna learn anything. Well, that's obvious, but what if you're hungry? You're not going to learn well when you're hungry either. If you don't feel safe, you're not going to feel. And I'm, I'm moving my way up Maslow's hierarchy. And we can look at the same types of things with other, other hierarchies like Erickson's or Kohlberg's. But the point here is that you have the perspective. You know your students. You see what they need. And you're actually adjusting what you're doing, Melissa, to try to give them what they need. And it's even though it's hard to deal with, and it frustrates me too. I don't know why the word gap is like a trigger word for me, but I just get pissed when I hear it. I don't know whether it's because I I feel like teachers are getting blamed for the gap or whether it's just not helping. You're not helping by talking about gap. Well, I think, yeah, it is. I, I, it's totally propaganda, but I think the reason also is when they talk about gap, it's just, 
that's a buzzword that they're trying to use as leverage to get the curriculum back and up and going again. They have gaps here. They have gaps there. So we have to be focusing on that when you're missing the whole entire point. Like, I mean, you put it into perspective here. I'm trying to teach before when I taught eighth graders, I'm trying to teach them active and passive voice and sentences Then I find out they don't know what a subject and verb is. You know, that's not a gap. That just means they they can't build off of anything there. They don't have that foundational knowledge. So before we can even get anywhere to their grade level and that kind of curricula, we have to start with the basics because that's what they need. Now, the only problem is whether we're allowed to do that. And I do say allowed, and I mean that word because a lot of times we are not. A lot of times it's rigor. And instead, what you know, when I'm asking for help and what to do with these behavioral things, I'm getting told, put the standards, the common core standards up on your board, along with the learning objectives. I'm getting told things like, I don't know, try switching the seats around. I mean, that's something that you try doing all the time, too. And it's not going to do anything, you know. I don't, I don't know what else. That, that's okay. frustrating. That's really super frustrating that, that anybody would, would think that, that you can ignore these problems and they go away or that the seating chart is going to save you here. I, I, I want to go back to something that, that you just inserted into this conversation, Jennifer. And I, I saw, I noticed you totally agree with it, um, Melissa. And you said the word propaganda. So well, this first. Oh, did you say it first? Now, what do you mean by that? Like propaganda has a, that's a pretty heavy charge. So who is propagandizing and what are they doing? It? What's their motive? I think it's actually having to do a shifting responsibility say, and actually shifting the needs of the students and getting a really shallow idea of how we problem solve this. So I think by saying gaps and we and rigor and using those kinds of buzzwords, we're not really thinking about the core of the problem there. So we're getting a very shallow view of that because the biggest uh, culprits of this problem that is just being it's already it's always been there. It's just been exacerbated by this pandemic and the fallout from it. The core of the problem has to do with how our public schools are funded. It has to do with systemic racism. It has to do with everything that transcends past our education system. But nobody wants to look at it because it's too hard to fix or they don't want to. And so they shift everything over to us as teachers because who cares? So this is why they were so upset on Facebook. So, you know, like poor people. And this is real. And it's, I, I feel terrible for them. Sorry. I agree, Melissa. I'll hush. So this is something I was I was wondering about, like, so what we have here is we have a a mandatory public education system where children have to go to school. They're forced to. And that force is a form of violence in and of itself. You're going to tell people they have to go to a building and be there all day. They're in prison, basically, until they're 16. And then by then they're domesticated and they don't want to leave. Most of them, their parents can literally be in incarcerated for that doesn't happen that often but if 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 the children don't go to school more than ever you might not want your child to go to school i mean they suffer from anxiety because of the pressure the academic pressure but they also suffer from anxiety due to covid they suffer from new anxiety they might get hurt by by a violent a violent classmate so 
imagine teacher to that too. The teacher, like um, like the 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 creepy teacher, that's an issue where we are in Wilmington, not where I teach. I you know I don't hear this in where I teach, but um, where my child is in Wilmington. There's also a, some like a series of creepy teachers. I'm sorry to say that all have had issues very, very publicly. So that's going to happen more and more because what's going to happen is the best teachers are going to have the easiest time moving for, from one district to another. So I have a student. I was teaching class last night, and I have a student who 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 went through the Lawrence Public Schools and. And then I have a student right now who is also went through the Western public schools. That's their educations. And they're both working. One of them's working in the one that went through Lawrence is doing a field placement um, as part of his education in, in Lawrence public schools. The student who grew up in Weston, which is one of the wealthiest towns in the state, is doing his field experience. Big surprise in Westford, which is also a upper middle class town. It's not as wealthy as Weston, but in in Westford, they're doing mindfulness practices. They they're setting aside the curriculum. They're not double downing on doubling down on it. They're setting it aside and they're doing mindfulness practices during the day and they're having extended conversations and dialogues with students about their feelings, which is what exactly what they need. But Westford can afford to take a hit on the test scores because those students grow up with educated parents and therefore they're more likely to, and we see this across the state. It's, it's the data has been, been the, the, the data has been in for 20 years that the wealthier communities have higher test scores. And the reason for that is, is because the wealthier communities have more educated parents and the education of the parents lifts the, edu the, the, um, the abilities, the performance of their own children. So the, the districts that need Maslow the most are the ones that are doubling down on academics and doing Maslow the least. They're doing more bloom. And the districts that are doing the most, the most Maslow, like Westford, are the ones that probably don't need it as much. I, I don't want to tell, I don't want to say Westford or Newton. I have a student right now who teaches in the Newton Public Schools. And she told me the same thing that, you know, they're, they're trying to relax the standards a little bit, maybe back off on them a little bit because they need to give people some some time to heal, some time to rest. And I'm like, wow, if it, you know, that's fantastic. But the only reason you get to do that is because Newton has amazing test scores. So how much of this is, as, as you were saying, Melissa, was already there, right? You put kids in prison, you tell them what to do all day long. And then you, over the last 20 to 25 years, you, in, you ramp up the expectations. Okay, we now have frameworks. When I started teaching, there were no frameworks. Um, then now we have a high stakes test. Then we have a high stakes test that's linked to graduation. Then we have, you know, um, we have numerous other responsibilities. We keep ramping it up. We have for teachers, it becomes professional standards for teachers, SEL, ELL, SEI, and where does it end? The teacher's stress gets naturally absorbed by the students who are in their presence all day long. And the creepy teachers are a reality that's gonna take over more and more because if you're, if you're a, a competent professional educator, you're gonna move from Lawrence to Westford. 
you're going to move from Haverhill to Newburyport because you still want to teach, but you don't want to, you want to do mindfulness practices and you don't want to be witness to your students, you know, being treated like they're, they're, they're inmates or people who are competent professional educators are also more likely to be able to leave teaching and be okay. The, 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 the crappiest teachers, some of them who aren't certified or licensed or, or competent um, and are just really substitutes. And there's a huge substitute shortage right now. They're going to, they, they're going to taking people off the streets and, and putting them in classrooms. That's a creep, creepy practice, never mind creepy people. What you have left is the lowest common denominator of teachers because in the, in the neediest situations, because the, the, the and this and, and you talked about this, Melissa, it's about the way we structure education funding in this state. But more importantly, it's about the way we do education in this state in general. We've we've turned it into a tyrannical system where teachers don't have as much really or any say in what they are allowed to teach. And we had social and emotional learning for a long time in in schools in Massachusetts. But we we don't have space for it anymore because of the high stakes testing. We don't have time for that anymore. So we've only brought SEL back in. It's only become a thing. We only came up with the term SEL because we need it. Well, we didn't need it before because we were doing it before because something else, but something else knocked it out of the way. Now we have to do both. Now we have to, you know, we have to teach all those languages and English and teachers have to teach SEL and teachers have to do restorative practices on Saturdays. And that teacher who's standing in front of you, that's you guys in front of your students is, is, is not loving the job, not happy, not stress-free. And that person is standing there in front of those students and is, the students are absorbing that stress that's coming right off of you. It, 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 you can't, you can't, you can't take it forever and just absorb it without it leaking back out on you. And it makes your ability to respond instead of react compromised. It's, it's a load on you. And I'm wondering what, what you can do about it. And I guess there's two ways to look at that. One is what you can do about it in those moments. And then what you can do about it in, in a larger way, like what we can do about it as a, as a teachers, as a group can do about it. Because th there is, with technology being what it is and our ability to now organize ourselves and the desperation that teachers are having, rather than everybody just silently quitting over here and there and the other thing, it seems like it, make, it makes sense for teachers to start talking about this and then speaking with one voice and saying, folks, there's a solution to this and we know what it is. Why don't you ask us? So I noticed that Christina, uh, ha you had your hand up a, a while ago, but um, I'm, I'm not sure if I, I talk so long that it's not relevant anymore. Oh, I was just, it was kind of with what Melissa was saying, because I agree with like everything she said and what she was specifically talking about with, I wish we could just, was something we talked about as a team, my grade was like a month ago. It was like a month into school. We were like, why couldn't we have just taken the first month just to reteach the kids how to behave in like a school setting. Like I, we all said it, we're like, why couldn't we have just done that? Like we, we like hinted at it that we wanted to do that, but 
And it would have saved us so much time because we're trying to juggle that with teaching them things. Like today, last period, I didn't teach at all. I was just trying to like control the situation in my class. I didn't get through this lesson. And that's okay sometimes if you have to like skip the lesson and just teach them how to behave. We did that. We practiced that. And yeah, I've had to do that a few times where I just throw out the lesson. I'm like, okay, well, we're going to learn how to like, you know, sit quietly in our seats, how to raise our hand. We're going to practice that. We're going to go over the rules. And I wish we had just done that for the first month of school. And that I think that would have solved or at least, you know, dampened what was happening right now to an effect, at least, because like I said, they've been out of school for over a year. They don't remember how to behave. And that makes sense. Um, and just like reteaching them would have helped and saved so much time in the long run. I think you're right. Now, I, I wonder if it's too late to do that now. Or, yeah, I mean, I'm guessing that if you had said back in September to your boss, hey, boss, can we do this? And your boss thinking about the school committee and the the the, the superintendent and, and the Department of Education. Now, I don't think that's a good idea. But they might listen now. They might say, well, I don't think we have a choice. We have to do that now. It, there's, a, there's, a, there's an inherent lack of, tr- of trusting teachers' judgment, professional judgment. And that that's a major problem. Um, there's, there's a whole layer of bureaucracy between, between teachers and, and the people who make decisions about education now, too. When I started teaching, the Department of Education was almost like irrelevant. They, they issued your teacher's license, but that was about it. There was the, the idea of frameworks and high stakes testing and SEI and all that stuff that that was not those weren't even things like that's not that wasn't something that we even thought about. I'm not saying that we should have no Department of Education. I'm not saying we shouldn't have frameworks, but but teach because of that teachers had a lot more say because their school districts were actually making education policy. They didn't have to like go to the school district and say, can we do this? And the school district thinks about their education policy in a frame that the state made for them. Jennifer, you wanted to say something. I, I did. I was thinking about solutions, you know, a little, you know, a, a few minutes ago, we we're talking like, well, what do we actually do? And there's, um, and there's two things I want to suggest. And one is, is performed by the teacher in the classroom. So my first suggestion is provide the space for the class to have like an, it's, it's, it's literally an emotional experience. So in English class, we read stories and the children have an emotional experience together and we all acknowledge it. And we literally acknowledge sadness. I showed them inside out the Disney movie at the beginning of the year, because I needed them. These, these kids are 14 years old. They needed access to joy, sadness, fear, anger, and disgust. They needed to know them right off the top of their heads, just like plot character conflict theme setting. So I needed them to be aware of these five emotions. And when we began to read the short stories together, this was our, this is what we kept doing. We kept having emotional experiences and naming emotions. And it was, this is what it did. It made people very uncomfortable. You know, like the question came up like, well, when was the last time you cried? You know, and these boys in the classroom, you know, some of them welling up, you know, and then others like, oh, you know, like it was a, it, like that sort of, um, it's like, have you ever had a balloon 
and it's blown up so big and you got the pin is so small it can put a hole in it for a second but then the pin like when the balloon shrinks it needs a bigger pin you just you've got to let this air out slowly so that the kids are processing their emotions in the classroom i hate to say it but that's part of the responsibility of the teacher you know to be able to take that pressure off in the classroom. English teacher does it with stories. I don't know what math teachers do, but the other thing I wanted to say though was teachers outside the classroom, just as important in contributing, you know, to a change or helping in any way is this, because the unions are not the best place for voices out that, that speak outside of union talking points. So this violence in the school, it's not, it's not on my union's list. I don't see any of the unions like talking about this. And I, I, I wonder where are the unions when we are on Facebook? You know, like where are the union voices? And then I keep thinking I should post on my own local union's Facebook page, I should say something like, hey, you guys, you know, <laughs> what about this? But I, the, the, how, like, the, it's, it looks like I'm trying to stir something up. You know, that's how, that's how it comes off. But you are. That, that's it, you, isn't that what Susie's job is? But I, I actually don't want anyone to get hurt. I don't want any negative outcomes. I want to get hurt if you don't do it. Well, that's what I see. I feel like if we, I would never speak up unless I saw a disaster. I would stay and only read books. And all, I have my husband and family are prowling around me wondering when I'm going to come and hang around. And, you know, like that really is my whole thing is teach content during the day, family at night. And this, these subjects, this one and, but it's not, it's also, um, I, I, it's also anti-racism. That's another one. It, um, it requires my presence. And one of the things I notice is that the unions are not present on keeping teachers safe in school, anti-racism, and, and others. You know, the, I, I don't think that they're, like, the discipline is another thing. I, I happen to think like no one should ever be disciplined for anything. And I am totally aware that that is not possible. And I have respect for assistant principals who have to dole out discipline. And so with all of that said, I, you know, I, I would not teach with it. You know, I would do circles and spaces where we went to our emotions whenever we had bad behavior. So, and I think that that is the solution. But not having support for it, that's what's killing me. That's what's, I, you know, that's what has me exhausted. I've never been so tired in all my life, except like maybe my, don't get me started. One other time, I keep thinking like, is this worse than that? And uh, I think the answer is yes. I want to thank you all for being here and for all the work that you do with, with children that, and that you haven't quit yet. Uh, and hope, hopefully you won't. And I hope this doesn't continue. But if, if it does, you folks are in the front lines. And the students and their parents are lucky that, that you are. And because you're, you're keeping the creepy ones at bay. <laughs> the creepy ones, that sounds weird. 
but um, th there, is, there, are, there are teachers out there that are not, there are people out there, they're not teachers, there are people out there who are not qualified who will take your jobs if you quit. And I'm not trying to say that because I want to scare you into keeping your, just staying in your job. At some point, you know, people have to leave and they, they have to, they have to protect themselves. There are ways, you, you talked about this a little bit just a second ago, Jen, there are ways that you can take care of yourself while you're doing this job so you can keep doing it. And that might mean you don't take work home with you, or that might mean you don't answer emails after, you know, four or five o'clock. And that, that, those are important boundaries to set. And, and maybe those, that's where the union can help if they're not going to be, not going to be helpful in, in the ways that you're describing, which I think they should. Maybe they can defend you when, you know, you don't respond to an email over the weekend or you don't respond to phone calls at night or you don't do your work at night and then you get disciplined for that. Maybe the union will step up for you there. We'll see. Thank you all for being on this show today. It's, it's, it's important for all of you. It's important for us and it's important for 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 this, this your students and and i hope you join us next week next week we're going to be back on the air at 3 30 on a friday we have a topic that's rather pedestrian but we might bump it to continue talking about this if necessary we'll see what happens and you'll see um you'll see promotions for it on linkedin and twitter and facebook thanks a lot have a good weekend and keep up the good work Teacher Talk comes to you from TLN, Teacher Leadership Network. talk we're taking up fighting in school this is your host dr john brown we hope you'll join us the doctor is in So thanks for joining us on Teacher Talk. This is John Brown, and my guest is Scarlett Tanetta. She works for Satchel Pulse Education Consulting Company. You, Scarlett, were a school teacher and school administrator. You have seen many, many, many different schools and programs because of your work, which is why you're here today. And we're talking about fighting in schools, violence, disruptions at a scale I have never seen before in my career ever. It's disturbing. I'm seeing it through you folks that I know through Teacher Leadership Network and that I have in my classes and former students and colleagues are reporting that there's fighting going on in schools between students, attacks on teachers. But I don't have to be 
working in education at all to know about this. There have been newspaper articles published in the Boston Globe, the New York Times, there's a big piece on it two weeks ago in the Washington Post. There is there there have been students arrested in schools. There was a teacher attacked in Boston last week, Dorchester. She was knocked unconscious by a student. It's it's a scary place to work now. So my wife works in the Danvers Public Schools, which is famous for an isolated incident where a teacher was killed by her student, raped and killed by her student. And those teachers still have PTSD to this day. But that, and I don't dismiss that, that incident at all, but that one student was singularly alone in this act. What's going on now is like an illness that's spreading. It's the, the, the social norms of schools have broken down and people are just interrupting um, their teachers. When I go to observe student teaching practicums, I'm, I'm seeing it with my own eyes. They are loud in the hallways. They are confrontational and oppositional in a way that I've never seen before. And, and, and I'm hoping, Scarlett, you can, you can give us a clue as to why this is happening now. Like what, what happened to our schools? I don't think it's one thing. I actually think that it is a build up and tumble over a lot of things added up since March of 2020 when students stopped going to school. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. It's it's um, so there's been a lot of conversation about learning loss. And when when that's talked about on national public radio or on the national news, that conversation is almost always about academic learning loss. And I'm wondering how much like social and emotional learning loss, which includes the concept of self-regulation and just normative behavior, social behavior, how much of that was lost over that period? And is there something else also on top of that that has occurred in the past year while students were either remote or socially distanced and in school or some combination of both. Jen Susie's in the line. Jen, tell, tell us what your experience with this is. Part of this is personal experience where I'm identifying with the student experience of being out of school for a, a year. And because I was because of the position I'm in where I teach, I didn't teach English last year. I literally was separated from everything I was used to. I was home and teaching a different class. So I needed to make this work as an adult, just like the kids needed to make that work. And it was an emotional experience. So because I'm an adult, I was able to move through and note, make note of what my experience was. And when I could easily see what was happening to the kids stuck in stages, I was able to help. All right, but my caseload, my caseload, my student roster was so small. I usually, I'm usually with 100 students a year, easily, usually more than that. Sometimes I've got a big study and I have 150. But this, that, that, that year, I only had in my, uh, I only had about, 20, maybe 25 all year long. I had a lot of time for them. And I did nothing but stay on with students all day long. I thought as long as I am here, 
I can provide help. So one kid had a violent past, and this is why I'm telling the story. She came to me with a violent past, used to make solving problems with violence. She had reported being sexually assaulted. She had had an experience going through a system that was not friendly to her. She was she came to a place where she was not going to make it. And I called DCF. So I it my call to DCF put her back in the classroom and she I think she was with me nonstop through the end of the year. And so she suddenly I had one student who almost never left my Zoom. And so I worked in front of her. I came in in front of her. I did everything in front of her. I also talked with her about her violent experience. She would show me videos of her violent behavior that was being recorded and caught and then being used against her on social media and other places. It was fascinating to watch. And I would watch these things and I would tell her, I was like, oh, I see you hanging back there. You know, like, why didn't you go in then? And she was saying, look, I was trying to avoid fighting then, you know, and she was, we processed moment after moment of violence. Okay. Now I see her at school because it's a year later and the child is different. The child is wearing pink and she's in a good mood and she's, we've never met. We met personally for the first time this year. It's not only being remote that is causing it. It's not only MCAS, but it is, I think, in a way, that emotional journey that everyone had to take in their own way with their own horrible experience. Like this, this kid was had her thing, but the others were left with their thing. And, you know, I wasn't on Zoom with them all day long. You know, there were other kids just like that kid. And there were hundreds of them. And they didn't have someone that had that dedication. And I think that one-on-one dedication, knowing somebody, helped that one kid. And then that not known thing, that feeling not known, you have license to do anything. And the MCAS is just part of it on making you, turning you into something nameless. I think to go off of that, what directly connects to that too, is how you make a great point that students need personal relationships with teachers and and just one adult in the school, right? To feel valued. And what else is happening right now? There's a nationwide teacher shortage, bus driver shortage, paraprofessional shortage, lunch worker shortage, right? There's not people. My I live in Lowell and my daughter takes the bus and it's supposed to come at 2.53 every day. And today it came at 3.10. And we got a text that the bus was going to be late. And that happens on a regular basis. Um, I know there are some people here who work in Lawrence. My husband works in Lawrence and the National Guard is driving vans at his elementary school because there's no bus drivers, right? So it's like a kid who maybe the bus driver was their person or the cafeteria worker was their person. They don't have that anymore. So students are literally left without a net. And it's not because people don't have the best of intentions. It's not because you as a teacher don't have the best of intentions. There's only one of you. And you probably have 125 students again. So what do you do? How do you do that? That's why. That's just another reason, you know? 
So what both of you saying is how important this should be a wake up call for average American in society. This is how important teaching is. Despite the fact that teachers hands are generally tied by curriculum bureaucracy and regulations and high stakes testing, still we've managed to, with a relatively antiquated system, all of us have great ideas about how to change it. Nobody's interested in listening to us. And still up until just recently, there has been relative calm in mandatory public education. So what you do is you take all these people, the young people who are there, who are ready to, you know, start feeling who they are and rejecting other people's directions as a, as a normal consequence of being an adolescent and teachers have always handled that very well, despite our lack of training, despite the lack of training that teachers generally get about dealing with difficult interactions. Teachers generally learn that stuff on the fly and they learn it fairly well. But with the, the combined learning loss, the stresses that have been ramped up over the past 20 years for, te for teachers and students, and also what you were just saying, Scarlett, that there is a lack of both teachers physically, like teachers are, are, are leaving the, the, the job, they're retiring early, they're quitting, they can't handle it. I've, I've talked to so many people in the past six months who are like asking me technical questions. Like if I leave now, can I still have health insurance on my pension? I'm like, why, why do you want to leave now? Like what's, what's going on? You know, this was like last September, you know, just a few months ago. Like you have no idea how bad it's getting in school. I'm like, what do you mean bad? And the answer to that question was always the students are incredibly irritable and they are oppositional and they their needs aren't being met and nobody cares and I'm not sure I can meet them anymore. Meanwhile, the other piece of it is that administrators are telling teachers and I hear this every day. It's business as usual. We're moving on. We're not we're not stopping. And the fact the fact that the Department of Education has has decided to administer high stakes tests like the MCAS and schools like in big cities like Lawrence is still administering the, the map and they're testing for skills that were never taught, <laughs> which means that data is not even valuable, but they just want to continue business as usual for the sake of returning to normal. How's that working for us? It's are, not we, are we back to normal? So I, I hope that the, the administrators, because the, the administrators are getting you know, knocked unconscious too. I hope that the administrators are getting a good, a, a give, getting a chance to reflect on what we're going to do with this, which is my next question for you, Scarlett. To go back to that thing that, that Scarlett and you were just saying, John, that all of these triggers, like that MCAS high stakes testing, that affects so many students. I know it doesn't affect all of them. And I know that teachers also are, are affected by MCAS, but really that's not what's making the, like the, the, I have the I have an honors kid who sweats during class and he I mean he will not be violent he won't actually throw a punch but I can see this really terrific com completely per like a perfect child I know there's no such thing but he's perfect he's perfect he has nothing to change he doesn't need anything and he is becoming a series of ticks 
he gave a presentation where he couldn't, he literally couldn't stop like hitting his foot. As he spoke, he kept lifting his foot and hitting his own foot. And when I saw your post about the violence, like that's, that's connected to other triggers that are making the children. It's not, it's not just like that principal who was knocked unconscious has my undying sympathy because I can't imagine that ever happening. And I, I have no, I do not side with any violence ever. And I still say that was a child and we are the adults and I got to figure out why the child is doing this. And that boy that gave the presentation today and the child that knocked the principal unconscious, they're the same child. So, so yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you said that because it was, it's been, that's been on my mind. I posted, and, and some of you may have seen this, I posted a promotion for this show on Facebook. And then there was a big, and I saw Jen, you were in there, and there was a big misconception about, a number of misconceptions about what the show was going to be about. One's that um, the show is going to bash teachers and say it's a teacher's fault. And that's, that's where, you know, you're getting close to that. I know you're not bashing teachers and you're not intending to, but a lot of teachers might respond right now and say, but Susie, it's not our job to take care of this. And you and I would disagree and say, it is our job to take care of this. Um, Actually, like, rather, I, I disagree. I would say, no, you are right. It's not my job. I would say that does not fall under the, the um, you know, I don't have that in my contract. I don't have to do that. And I think teachers are right to say, I draw a line and I am not responsible for that. And I see teachers doing things that I am not, there's no way I'm going to do. I am not going to take responsibility for cheering the football team, but I will be willing to take responsibility for this. And I don't mean blame, <laughs> you know, like I, this has nothing to do with me. I'm perfect in this regard. And, you know, bring me your children and, you know, enjoy the outcomes and vocational teaching. That's part of it. So I'm comfortable in that role. And I know that there are wonderful teachers that do things that I cannot do. And I will not take responsibility for that because that is not in my contract. And I, no one has to make me do that. But this where I can like uh, I can connect through literature. The, the points are uh, work in my classroom. I'm, I teach books that have topics of, you know, where violence is committed. You know, I'm in high school and I can. This is this is a powerful position for me to be in and our skill sets are, you know, are what's necessary to address this problem. I felt myself working on this problem as a teacher on Facebook in that like it, that's a, um, that public place and trying to educate teachers on the difference between taking blame and taking responsibility. So well said. Uh, it leads me it leads me to, to ask you folks, what can teachers do specifically to help students, both the students who we, we might want to judge and demonize and say, these students are bad kids. I think we should help those people. And that, I think that's their needs are not being met. And that's why they're acting this way. And how can we help the students who are victims of either, you know, verbal, emotional, physical violence or violence by proxy when when a child sees their teacher 
or principal attacked by another student, or when a child sees another child, and I say child, I mean all the way up to grade 12, attacked by another student, they, they have a traumatic experience, they're having a traumatic experience of one sort of or another. And it could be a triggering event for some PSD experience that they've had in the past with they've witnessed violence where they've been attacked themselves. So this is, this is like a contagion that when one person's attacked, lots of people are affected. Um, that the person who's attacked is affected. The person who gets attacked is affected. The people who witness it are affected. Even the people who hear about it are affected. What can we, what can teachers do? I shouldn't say we, I'm, a, I'm not a teacher anymore. What can, what can teachers do specifically on a daily basis to, to A, prevent this and B, respond to it? Christina, do you have any ideas uh, here? I, I, I know that you work in a school district that it has been fraught with, with violence over the past month. And, yeah. and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about this. Yeah, so this is, as you know, my first year teaching. I did student teaching during COVID, so I never had to deal with classroom management, really. Um, and I did my student teaching at Chelmsford High School. So it was completely different. I work at a middle school in Lawrence right now. It's been really tough. Our particular, my grade, grade six, has been, it's one of the tougher groups in the school, actually. They, it's grades three through eight. So they made their way, you know, through the school. So the teachers all know them for the most part. What we've been doing, Lawrence, right now is um, we have a restorative justice kind of curriculum going on. They're trying to implement that. And I actually have a PD I did last Saturday, and I'm doing one this Saturday for tier uh, one training on restorative justice. And what we've been doing every week, we do these um, restorative justice circles in the morning during homeroom. And um, we kind of, we have these different like topics we talk about, like motivation. We talk about like what happens when a friend, like how to be a good friend. This is friendship week right now. And what we just talked about in one of our meetings earlier today with the principal, we're trying to reboot the sixth grade in their mindset right now. And we're going to have a meeting on Tuesday, I think with the whole sixth grade. But what we're going to start doing is instead of, we're going to start doing a detention after school. But instead of detention, we're going to have them do circles and we're going to talk about like why they are staying after school. And we're going to have to like trying to have them like mediate and talk with one another. And we're going to do this in every grade. We kind of, our grade kind of jump started it because we're like, we need to do something. I've been doing this thing where like, you know, if the kids are disruptive, I set a timer. And as the time goes up, that's how much time they owe me after school um, as sort of we're trying to prevent things as much as possible. I had a fight in my class just last period. It, the kids, actually, the two kids were about to go at each other. The other kids pulled them apart. I was about to buzz. One of the kids ran out for the, um, this happens every day for me. I'm just, this was my voice sounds like this. I'm just, you know, I'm used to it at this point, but I know the kids, like I love all the kids, like they're, they can be so sweet. And it's so strange because they'll be great one minute, the next minute, you know, it's like all of a sudden they flip a switch. You know, that's what we're doing here. I don't have a lot of experience with this, but I found that just pulling the kids aside and talking to them and letting them know that they're not, it's not a bad thing. They're not in trouble, but I just want to get to the bottom of why they're acting this way. They'll usually tell me. I had one student tell me, and he's been a joy this last week, but before that he was like up and down the halls, running through classes, causing mayhem. But this week he's been great. And I talked to him and he said that his, like his, dog, his dog had just had puppies and two of the puppies died. 
And that reminded him about how his aunt had died last year. And he was there when it happened, like his grandmother found out and he saw her crying. And these kids go through so much. I found like the home lives of some of these kids. I can't even imagine. I found out like stories about some of them. One child's parents where his mother was murdered by his father. Like it breaks my heart, you know, and we have to understand that like some of them, this is their safe space. Like the, the school is their safe space. So like to then, I know some of them told me they wanted to stay after today with me because they don't want to go home. So the fact that they don't feel safe in school, a lot of them, it's really disheartening. Um, so I think that this circle thing that we're going to try out next week, I'll let you know how it goes, but hopefully it does something. I think it will because the circles we've been having in the morning have been really nice. The kids are really opening up and talking to one another. Um, so I'm hoping that the after school ones do the same thing. I have two things. I want to say I, I heard good things about that. And I also want to direct you to a piece of technology to save your voice. It's used for um, students who don't hear. And you, you, it's, a, it's a speaker, okay? And oh. you put on a thing and you tie it, you hang a thing around your neck and your voice is amplified. I've got it. Every I've been using it. It's right here. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. That's every teacher should have one of those. Yeah, I've my my mentor teacher suggested I get one and I got one the next day. Um, it's helped, but even then, it's, it's so loud sometimes that just yeah. I heard good things about the thing you described. I'm happy to hear that sound. So, so Christina, thank you for for te- for telling us what your school's trying. Some schools are are, are doubling down hard on discipline, and yeah. that that doesn't seem to be working. It, not from anybody I've talked to that an ethic of care seems to be called for, but that's difficult too, because there are some victims in, in, in the you know, students, teachers who feel like, you know, being soft on discipline isn't enough for them. I, I've been to your school. So I, I've supervised two practicums in your school and I've seen it day to day. And I know that those children at that school had those experiences those negative experiences at home back then too. Why it, uh, is a thing so different now? Or, or maybe that's not true. Maybe the negative experiences they had back then were minor compared to what they're experiencing now. But but, but what what do you, how do we account? I know you weren't there then, Christina. But how do we account for this change? It's really almost seems like a pre-COVID, post-COVID change. And, and, and I, I can only guess, I, I mean, I know that alcoholism and drug abuse went up like more than just ticked up during COVID because people had time, they were inside. It was a, there was, there were, there were a recovery programs weren't initially on Zoom. Alcohol sales were through the roof during COVID. Some communities had greater economic impacts than others. Yours probably did. People probably lost their jobs. Families probably got ruined by that. Uh, People probably, more people in your community probably died. Is this a a collective PTSD for for the community, some communities? And, or or is is there something here that we haven't touched on yet? Well, I have like two things. So one was to point out, yeah, so the kids, some kids, I know that their parents are like left them with family and they're back in like the DR. I have a couple kids like that. And that must be so horrible for them because they feel abandoned. And I know just from watching the news, there was this one 
Um, we've talked about it here, but social, social emotional learning for these kids, they are so stunted right now because they missed basically over a year of school. Um, they don't have that social interaction. So many of my kids don't know kids in other classes from their same grade that they've known, like they've been going to school with since third grade. They're like, who is that? I just had that happen today. I mentioned a name. They're like, who? You know, they, so we're going to be shaking up the homerooms again. We're going to be the end of the term, the end of the month. We're going to be switching them around again. So kids can, we can try to find that sweet spot of having some, you know, kids that can model good behavior for the other kids. But I've just noticed like something someone said on the news. I think it was a student from Lawrence High. She said that they just don't know each other anymore. Like they haven't been able to see each other and they can't. I forget the word she used, but it was really good. She, it was very insightful. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense that they just don't know each other. They haven't had a chance to like bond. I don't know if that's exactly what she said, but I completely agree with that. And then something else, a little unrelated, but you had said that people say that that approach can be soft. We were just talking in PD on Saturday about, and it's people from Suffolk University that are doing it. Um, they were just saying how this is based on a Native American indigenous people's like um, customs, these circles. It actually can be harsher on them because you're, instead of punishing people and in our, I'm speaking of not really the school, but just the country as a whole, the punitive system, you're, a lot of people don't actually serve time because they're, you know, they're, they're just um, settling out of court. So they're not actually being like punished for what they did. They don't really, you know what I mean? It's hard to explain, but so in this system that, you know, the circles, the culture of the indigenous people, they, it's more of a community watch so that everyone knows what you did and they hold you accountable for it. Like if you know that you did something wrong and everyone else knows, you're less likely to do it again. So it's actually almost a harsher system in a way. And that way they actually learn from what they did wrong rather than like, oh, you're going to get detention after school. It's hard to, especially for a kid to equate, you know, yelling out in class with detention. Like they're not, especially if you're getting punished the same way for different things that you do. Like if you get detention for yelling or hitting for this, you might then put them all on the same level of, of an infraction when they shouldn't be like yelling out in class is completely different than hitting someone, you know? So, and I'm assuming that it's, it's a social accountability. Restorative practices, restorative justice, restorative justice, restorative classrooms. The ethos there is to have for people to be accountable for their own behavior and have to look at it. It's not a public shaming. It's meant that they may feel embarrassed or self-conscious but it's not meant to be a shame, shaming experience. Right. And if it is, then it's being done wrong, but that they're supposed to be able to reflect on and recount what they've done and how it's affected other people. And so they can make the, the it's actually changes the experience from being uh, what we might typically call a disciplinary experience to being a teaching experience where they learn. And that is very, very difficult for schools to do. But hearing that you're going to Saturday, you're going to classes on Saturday, so you can be a better teacher for your students Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, shows that that's the investment that's necessary here. So uh, I I shouldn't put on my union hat here, but I'm going to, and I'm gonna ask you, Christina, are you being paid for going in on, on Saturday? 
I think so. So it's required and you have to do tier. There's like tier one, tier two, because I'm new, I'm doing tier one and it's two Saturdays in a row from eight 30 to three. So it's the full day. So I'm, I did ask one of my, my team leader, who's the science teacher. She said that when they did it last year, it was all, all it's all online, but she said, yeah, you get, you get paid especially, but the other PDs I go to, um, I go to one every like other Monday just for new teachers. That's optional. So I don't, and that's only for like an hour and a half. This one, I'm pretty sure I do. I would hope I would because it's required. So I, I think I do. That, that like of, of all, <laughs> this is, this is tough for me to hear. And I know it, it doesn't seem like it's, 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 it's not phasing any of you guys, but it's tough for me to hear that, that you folks are dealing with this very raw, very somewhat new and disturbing behavior also being the the subject of or the target potentially of violence whether it's verbal or physical and then you go to work on saturday to try to make it better that's i i, I don't know i'm i'm impressed and, and and i'm i'm sad that you you folks have to work twice as hard while you're working twice as hard after you just came off of a year which is the worst year to be an educator it was your first year christina the worst year to be an educator in the history of modern history of the united states education system if we ever get out of this hole you'll be like ah it was nothing compared to back in 2020. i see melissa is calling in melissa thanks for joining us what 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 are you experiencing in your classroom? Pretty much just the same that I'm sure other people have been saying, just an escalation in uh, drama and fighting. And not just that, um, it's just they don't know how to acclimate. And it's not even just not knowing who their peers are. It's not knowing where to go from there. Okay, so I put you in partners. Now you're just staring at each other. Now, if I put you with your friends, you know, they, you were friends pre-COVID, so you already know how to act around them. Now I put you with somebody who you never really talked to and you have absolutely no idea what to do. So I'm actually going to try to do an SEL thing on Monday when I realize that they just suck at this. <laughs> so what they're going to do is I, I created a lesson that's actually kind of like a speed dating sort of thing. Uh, giving them these uh, questions that they can ask and you roll a die and um, start talking about that. And then different levels here. So if you roll a six again, this is another thing that you should do. And then, all right, time's up. And now we're switching. I think that's actually going to be really helpful for them because, you know, sure, there's curriculum that we have to do. But if you want me to get to a think pair share, they have to actually know what to do in pairs. So that's what I'm trying to get them to do. If you want me to get them to collaborate and discuss and know what that's like and have Socratic seminars, they have to know how to act first. So, I mean, you always hear, you know, Maslow's before blooms, but, and I completely agree with it, but, you know, but that's an easy thing to say is just putting that into action. And I think us as teachers, we could try to do all we can, but we have things that are out of our scope of practice too. And I'm, I mean, I keep hearing like, not just learning loss, but gaps, which I absolutely hate. I absolutely hate hearing that word too, because it's not that they're gaps. 
they are where they are. They might be uh, behind according to curricula and according to their grade level and age, but they are where they are. If they don't have foundation, foundational knowledge, you're not going to make it past there. So it's not gaps. They just are behind. Or maybe they lost some knowledge there too, and you have to backtrack. But it doesn't mean that they're here, there, whatever. I just, I think it's propaganda to say that. So, yeah. but, Melissa, this is, I'm glad you brought up the word gaps. So, and I'm also, it, it, it heartens me to hear that, that you folks are teaching. That, that what you know how to do is teach and you care. So I'm going to turn that care into teaching. I'm going to teach these folks how to behave. I'm going to teach these folks how to relate with one another. I'm going to teach these folks how to be better people. And that, that's my answer to it. I'm not, I'm not going to discipline them. I'm not going to shame them. I'm not going to punish them. I might have to hold people's account, people accountable for their behavior. I might have to set boundaries uh, and, and set them again and set them again. But most importantly, and you mentioned Maslow before Bloom and, 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 and just for everybody else's understanding of what you mean by that, you mean Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs is more important or at least a prerequisite for classroom teaching before you can get to Bloom's taxonomy, which is a, you know, a, a understanding of different levels of thinking and it's more cognitive. So, and I agree with that 100%. If, if like, for example, one of the human needs that Maslow mentions is being able to breathe. If you're, if you're not breathing, you're not gonna learn anything. Well, that's obvious, but what if you're hungry? You're not going to learn well when you're hungry either. If you don't feel safe, you're not going to feel. And I'm, I'm moving my way up Maslow's hierarchy. And we can look at the same types of things with other, other hierarchies like Erickson's or Kohlberg's. But the point here is that you have the perspective. You know your students. You see what they need. And you're actually adjusting what you're doing, Melissa, to try to give them what they need. And it's even though it's hard to deal with, and it frustrates me too. I don't know why the word gap is like a trigger word for me, but I just get pissed when I hear it. I don't know whether it's because I, I feel like teachers are getting blamed for the gap or whether it's just not helping. You're not helping by talking about gap. Well, I think, I, yeah, it is. I, I, it's totally propaganda. But I think the reason also is when they talk about gap, it's just that's a buzzword that they're trying to use as leverage to get the curriculum back and up and going again. They have gaps here. They have gaps there. So we have to be focusing on that when you're missing the whole entire point. Like, I mean, you put it into perspective here. I'm trying to teach before when I taught eighth graders, I'm trying to teach them active and passive voice and sentences Then I find out they don't know what a subject and verb is. You know, that's not a gap. That just means they, they can't build off of anything there if they don't have that foundational knowledge. So before we can even get anywhere to their grade level and that kind of curricula, we have to start with the basics because that's what they need. Now, the only problem is whether we're allowed to do that. And I do say allowed, and I mean that word because a lot of times we are not. A lot of times it's rigor. And instead, what I, you know, when I'm asking for help and what to do with these behavioral things, I'm getting told, put the standards, the common core standards up on your board, along with the learning objectives. I'm getting told things like, I don't know, try switching the seats around. 
I mean, that's something that you try doing all the time too. And it's not going to do anything. You know, I don't, I don't know what else. That, that's say. frustrating. You know that's really super frustrating that, that anybody would, would think that, that you can ignore these problems and they go away or that the seating chart is going to save you here. I, I, I want to go back to something that, that you just inserted into this conversation, Jennifer. And I, I saw, I noticed you totally agree with it, um, Melissa. And you said the word propaganda. So Melissa said it first. Oh, did you say it first? Now, what do you mean by that? Like propaganda has a, that's a pretty heavy charge. So who is propagandizing and what are they doing? It? What's their motive? I think it's actually having to do with shifting responsibility say, and actually shifting the needs of the students and getting a really shallow idea of how we problem solve this. So I think by saying gaps and we and rigor and using those kinds of buzzwords, we're not really thinking about the core of the problem there. So we're getting a very shallow view of that because the biggest uh, culprits of this problem that is just being it's already it's always been there. It's just been exacerbated by this pandemic and the fallout from it. The core of the problem has to do with how our public schools are funded. It has to do with systemic racism. It has to do with everything that transcends past our education system. But nobody wants to look at it because it's too hard to fix or they don't want to. And so they shift everything over to us as teachers because who cares? So this so, is why they were so upset on Facebook. So, you know, like poor people. And this is real. And it's, I, I feel terrible for them. Sorry. I agree, Melissa. I'll hush. Yeah. So this is something I was I was wondering about, like, so what we have here is we have a a mandatory public education system where children have to go to school. They're forced to. And that force is a for form of violence in and of itself. You're going to tell people they have to go to a building and be there all day. They're in prison, basically, until they're 16. And then by then they're domesticated and they don't want to leave. Most of them, their parents can literally be in incarcerated for that doesn't happen that often but if if, if the children don't go to school ne more than ever you might not want your child to go to school i mean they suffer from anxiety because of the pressure the academic pressure but they also suffer from anxiety due to covid they suffer from new anxiety they might get hurt by by a violent a violent classmate so imagine a teacher to that to the teacher like um like the 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 creepy teacher that's an issue where we are in wilmington not where i teach i you know i don't hear this in where i teach but um where my child is in wilmington there's also a, some you know, like a series of creepy teachers i'm sorry to say that all have had issues very very publicly so that's going to happen more and more because what's going to happen is the best teachers are going to have the easiest time moving from one district to another. So I have a student, I was teaching class last night, and I have a student who 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 went through the Lawrence Public Schools, and and then I have a student right now who is also went through the Western Public Schools. That's their education. And they're both working, one of them's working in the one that went through Lawrence is doing a field placement um, as part of his education in in Lawrence Public Schools. The student who grew up in Weston, which is one of the wealthiest towns in the state, is doing his field experience, big surprise, in Westford, which is also a upper middle class town. It's not as wealthy as Weston, but in in Westford, 
they're doing mindfulness practices. They, they're setting aside the curriculum. They're not double downing on, doubling down on it. They're setting it aside and they're doing mindfulness practices during the day. And they're having extended conversations and dialogues with students about their feelings, which is what exactly what they need. But Westford can afford to take a hit on the test scores because those students grow up with educated parents and therefore they're more likely to, and we see this across the states. It's the data has been, been the, the, the data has been in for 20 years that the wealthier communities have higher test scores. And the reason for that is, is because the wealthier communities have more educated parents and the education of the parents lifts the, 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 um, the abilities, the performance of their own children. So the, the districts that need Maslow the most are the ones that are doubling down on academics and doing Maslow the least. They're doing more bloom. And the districts that are doing the most, the most Maslow, like Westford, are the ones that probably don't need it as much. I, I don't want to tell, I don't want to say Westford or Newton. I have a student right now who teaches in the Newton Public Schools. And she told me the same thing that, you know, they're, they're trying to relax the standards a little bit, maybe back off on them a little bit because they need to give people some, some time to heal, some time to rest. And I'm like, wow, if it, you know, that's fantastic. But the only reason you get to do that is because Newton has amazing test scores. So how much of this is, as, as you were saying, Melissa, it was already there, right? You put kids in prison, you tell them what to do all day long. And then you, over the last 20 to 25 years, you, you ramp up the expectations. Okay, we now have frameworks. I started teaching, there were no frameworks. Um, then now we have a high stakes test. Then we have a high stakes test that's linked to graduation. Then we have, you know, um, we have numerous other responsibilities. We keep ramping it up. We have for teachers, it becomes professional standards for teachers, SEL, ELL, SEI, and where does it end? The teacher's stress gets naturally absorbed by the students who are in their presence all day long. And the creepy teachers are a reality that's gonna take over more and more because if you're, if you're a, a competent professional educator, you're gonna move from Lawrence to Westford. You're going to move from Haverhill to Newburyport because you still want to teach, but you don't want to, you want to do mindfulness practices and you don't want to be witness to your students, you know, being treated like they're, they're, they're inmates or people who are competent professional educators are also more likely to be able to leave teaching and be okay. The, 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 the crappiest teachers, some of them who aren't certified or licensed or or competent um, and are just really substitutes. And there's a huge substitute shortage right now. They're gonna, they, they're gonna they're taking people off the streets and, and putting them in classrooms. That's a creep, creepy practice, Never mind creepy people. What you have left is the lowest common denominator of teachers because in the, in the, in the neediest situations, because the, 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 and this and, and you talked about this, Melissa, it's about the way we structure education funding in this state. But more importantly, it's about the way we do education in this state in general. We've we've turned it into a tyrannical system 
where teachers don't have as much really or any say in what they are allowed to teach. And we had social and emotional learning for a long time in in schools in Massachusetts, but we, we don't have space for it anymore because of the high stakes testing. We don't have time for that anymore. So we've only brought SEL back in. It's only become a thing. We only came up with the term SEL because we need it. Well, we didn't need it before because we were doing it before because something else, but something else knocked it out of the way. Now we have to do both. Now we have to, you know, we have to teach all those languages and English and teachers have to teach SEL and teachers have to do restorative practices on Saturdays. And that teacher who's standing in front of you, that's you guys in front of your students is, is, is not loving the job, not happy, not stress-free. And that person is standing there in front of those students and the students are absorbing that stress that's coming right off of you. It, 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 you can't, you can't, you can't take it forever and just absorb it without it leaking back out on you. And it makes your ability to respond instead of react compromised. It's, it's a load on you. And I'm wondering what, what you can do about it. And I guess there's two ways to look at that. One is what you can do about it in those moments. And then what you can do about it in, in a larger way, like what we can do about it as a, as a teachers, as a group can do about it, because there is with technology being what it is and our ability to now organize ourselves and the desperation that teachers are having rather than everybody just silently quitting over here and there and the other thing it seems like it make it makes sense for teachers to start talking about this and then speaking with one voice and saying folks there's a solution to this and we know what it is why don't you ask us so i noticed that Christina, uh, ha- you had your hand up a, a while ago, but um, I'm, I'm not sure if I, I talk so long that it's not relevant anymore. Oh, I was just, it was kind of with what Melissa was saying, because I agree with like everything she said and what she was specifically talking about with, I wish we could just, something we talked about as a team, my grade was like a month ago. It was like a month into school. We were like, why couldn't we have just taken the first month just to reteach the kids how to behave in like a school setting. Like I, we all said it, we're like, why couldn't we have just done that? Like we, we like hinted at it that we wanted to do that, but, and it would have saved us so much time because we're trying to juggle that with teaching them things. Like today, last period, I didn't teach at all. I was just trying to like control the situation in my class. I didn't get through this lesson and that's okay. Sometimes if you have to like skip the lesson, and just teach them how to behave. We did that. We practiced that. And yeah, I've had to do that a few times where I just throw out the lesson. I'm like, okay, well, we're going to learn how to like, you know, sit quietly in our seats, how to raise our hand. We're going to practice that. We're going to go over the rules. And I wish we had just done that for the first month of school. And that I think that would have solved, or at least, you know, dampened what was happening right now to an effect, at least, because like I said, they've been out of school for over a year. They don't remember how to behave. And that makes sense. Um, and just like reteaching them would have helped and saved so much time in the long run. I think you're right. Now, I, I wonder if it's too late to do that now. Or, yeah, I mean, I'm guessing that if you had said back in September to your boss, hey, boss, can we do this? And your boss thinking about the school committee and the, 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 the superintendent and, and the Department of Education. Now, I don't think that's a good idea. but they might listen now. They might say, 
well, I don't think we have a choice. We have to do that now. It, there's, a, there's, a, there's an inherent lack of, tr of trusting teachers' judgment, professional judgment. And that, that's a major problem. Um, there's, there's a whole layer of bureaucracy between, between teachers and, and the people who make decisions about education now too. When I started teaching, the Department of Education was almost like irrelevant. They, they issued your teacher's license, but that was about it. There was the, the idea of frameworks and high stakes testing and SEI and all that stuff. That, that was not, those weren't even things. Like that's not, that wasn't something that we even thought about. I'm not saying that we should have no Department of Education. I'm not saying we shouldn't have frameworks, but, but teach because of that, teachers had a lot more say because their school districts were actually making education policy. They didn't have to like go to the school district and say, can we do this? And the school district thinks about their education policy in a frame that the state made for them. Jennifer, you wanted to say something. I, I did. I was thinking about solutions, you know, a little, you know, a, a few minutes ago, we we're talking like, well, what do we actually do? And there's, um, and there's two things I want to suggest. And one is, is performed by the teacher in the classroom. So my first suggestion is provide the space for the class to have like and it's, it's, it's literally an emotional experience. So in English class, we read stories and the children have an emotional experience together and we all acknowledge it. And we literally acknowledge sadness. I showed them Inside Out, the Disney movie at the beginning of the year because I needed them. These, these kids are 14 years old. They needed access to joy, sadness, fear, anger, and disgust. They needed to know them right off the top of their heads, just like plot character conflict theme setting. So I needed them to be aware of these five emotions. And when we began to read the short stories together, this was our, this is what we kept doing. We kept having emotional experiences and naming emotions. And it was, this is what it did. It made people very uncomfortable. You know, like the question came up like, well, when was the last time you cried? You know, and these boys in the classroom, you know, some of them welling up, you know, and then others like, oh, you know, like it was a, it, like that sort of um, it's like, have you ever had a balloon and it's blown up so big and you got the pin is so small, it can put a hole in it for a second. But then the pin, like when the balloon shrinks, it needs a bigger pin. You just you've got to let this air out slowly so that the kids are processing their emotions in the classroom. I hate to say it, but that's part of the responsibility of the teacher, you know, to be able to take that pressure off in the classroom. English teacher does it with stories. I don't know what math teachers do, but the other thing I wanted to say, though, was teachers outside the classroom, just as important in con contributing, you know, to a change or helping in any way, is this because the unions are not the best place for voices out that that speak outside of union talking points so this violence in the school it's not get it's not on my unions list i don't see any of the unions like talking about this and i I, I wonder where are the unions when we are on Facebook, you know, like where are the union voices 
And then I keep thinking I should post on my own local union's Facebook page. I should say something like, hey, you guys, you know, <laughs> what about this? But I, the, the, how, like, the, it's, it looks like I'm trying to stir something up. You know, that's how, that's how it comes off. You are. That, that's your, isn't that what Susie's job is? But I, I actually don't want anyone to get hurt. I don't want any negative outcomes. I want to get hurt if you don't do it. Well, that's what I see. I feel like if we, I would never speak up unless I saw a disaster. I would stay and only read books. And only, I have my husband and family are prowling around me wondering when I'm going to come and hang around. And, you know, like that really is my whole thing is teach content during the day, family at night. And this, these subjects, this one, and, but it's not, it's also, um, I, I, it's also anti-racism. That's another one. It, um, it requires my presence. And one of the things I notice is that the unions are not present on keeping teachers safe in school, anti-racism, and, and others. You know, the, I, I don't think that they're, like, the discipline is another thing. I, I happen to think like no one should ever be disciplined for anything. And I am totally aware that that is not possible. And I have respect for assistant principals who have to dole out discipline. And so with all of that said, I, you know, I, I would not teach with it. You know, I would do circles and spaces where we went to our emotions whenever we had bad behavior. So, and I think that that is the solution. But not having support for it, that's what's killing me. That's what's, I, you know, that's what has me exhausted. I've never been so tired in all my life, except like maybe my, don't get me started. One other time, I keep thinking like, is this worse than that? And uh, I think the answer is yes. I want to thank you all for being here and for all the work that you do with, with children that, and that you haven't quit yet. Uh, and hope, hopefully you won't. And I hope this doesn't continue. But if, if it does, you folks are in the front lines. And the students and their parents are lucky that, that you are. And because you're, you're keeping the creepy ones at bay. <laughs> the creepy ones, that sounds weird. But um, th there, is, there, are, there are teachers out there that are not, there are people out there, they're not teachers. There are people out there who are not qualified who will take your jobs if you quit. And I'm not trying to say that because I want to scare you into keeping your just staying in your job. At some point, you know, people have to leave and they they have to they have to protect themselves. There are ways you you talked about this a little bit just a second ago, Jen. There are ways that you can take care of yourself while you're doing this job, so you can keep doing it. And that might mean you don't take work home with you, or that might mean you don't answer emails after you know, four or five o'clock. And that, that those are important boundaries to set. And, and maybe those that's where the union can help if they're not going to be not going to be helpful in, in the ways that you're describing, which I think they should, maybe they can defend you when, you know, you don't respond to an email over the weekend, or you don't respond to phone calls at night, or you don't do your work at night, and then you get disciplined for that. Maybe the union will step up for you there. We'll see. Thank you all for being on this show today. It's, it's, it's important for all of you. It's important for us and it's important for, for, for this, this, your students. 
And, and I hope you join us next week. Next week, we're going to be back on the air at 3.30 on a Friday. We have a topic that's rather pedestrian, but we might bump it to continue talking about this if necessary. We'll see what happens, and you'll see, um, you'll see promotions for it on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook. Thanks a lot. Have a good weekend, and keep up the good work. Teacher Talk comes to you from TLN. Teacher Leadership Network.